Good afternoon. Thanks for coming out on this chilly Wednesday to our October learning lunch. Today our topic uh, is innovation and we have a wonderful Penn State faculty member. His name is Sam Hunter. Sam's background, he came from the University of Oklahoma. He received his doctoral degree there in 2007, and he's been here at Penn State as a faculty member in the Industrial Organizational Psychology Program. Thanks, Jody. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. This is uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about. Super fun. Love it. It's a great area of research for us. It's a great um, area just in terms of... Um, fun interest for me, something I enjoy talking about, something I enjoy um, doing work in. I'll give you a bit of background on myself. Um, as Jody said, PhD from University of Oklahoma, uh, and being at Penn State means uh, I have a great football season every year. It's uh, fun to watch. So. Um, I've had largely an academic focus for about 10 years, studying creativity and innovation, meaning um, not particularly applied. We do a lot of reading. We pay attention uh, to a lot of research. Um, these days, it's shifted a bit. I actually do a lot of work, interdisciplinary work, meaning I work with uh, engineers and architects and all these folks that are doing creative stuff. And it's been a lot of fun to learn about some of the things that are actually going on as opposed to just sort of reading some of these studies and that kind of thing. Um, I've also gotten quite a bit more applied recently. Um, one of the reasons I say that I, I love doing this stuff is because in the past year being at Penn State, I've got to sit down with um, you know, heads of Nike, uh, heads of Google, um, IDEO, I went down to Lockheed Martin Center for Innovation, Raytheon, uh, Epic Games, all these different places. And I got to ask them the kind of stuff that they do uh, to be creative and to be innovative, and I've learned a ton. And it's been just so much fun for me to ask those types of questions that folks are actually out there doing that kind of stuff. So that's sort of my background um, here, largely an academic focus for a while. These days a little bit more applied, working with folks uh, in other areas, things I really enjoy. Um, what are we going to talk about today? I'm going to try to talk about uh, the importance and definition of innovation, try to convince you that that's important. Um, I'm going to talk about what's necessary for innovation, sort of what are the requirements so that we can be more innovative and be more creative. Um, I'll talk about leadership and the role of leadership in creativity and innovation, which is actually pretty big. It's actually a pretty big deal. So I have two main areas of research. One of them is innovation. The other one is leadership. One of the things that we found is that leadership is really, really important in doing new and different things. Um, we'll get to some best practices on leadership innovation, what you guys can do uh, when you're leading teams or when you're involved in teams uh, to be more innovative and to be more creative. Um, I'll talk a little bit about some of the research we do in our lab just because it's I think, relevant to today's conversation. And then we'll talk about uh, uh, some closing comments and move on to questions, which is where I want to get uh, as quick as we can because I want to sort of listen to you guys and, and answer some of the questions that you might have and, and hear some of your thoughts. Why do I study innovation? Uh, the first reason is selfish. It's fun. I like it. It's one of the uh, more interesting things that I think Iowa psychologists can pay attention to. Um, so there's a big selfish part. I think it's cool. That's what I do. Um, the second reason is relative to some other areas of research, there's a lot of things to be learned. We've covered a lot of ground in other areas. Oh, okay. Sorry. We covered a lot of ground in other areas. Um, don't know a ton about creativity and innovation, particularly in teams. We know a lot about individuals. We don't know a lot about how creative things happen in teams. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of things that we can be, things that can be learned. Um, organizations are always interested in this. One of the reasons I get to talk to big companies like Google and Nike and all these places is because they know it's important and they want to improve on this kind of stuff. 
So companies that do well have high performance. If you don't do well, it can be uh, problematic. But it's one of those ways that companies and different departments and different uh, organizations can really gain um, a competitive advantage in terms of uh, coming out with ideas first before other people, or at least doing new and interesting things. And then the fourth reason is that um, the problems of today are inherently complex. And in order to solve them, we're going to have to be more innovative, we're going to have to be more creative. Um, I'll give you an example, actually. So, we all want to be uh, good for the environment, we want to do good environmental things, we want to uh, uh, reduce our emissions with our cars and all that kind of stuff. So, it's a good question to ask why do we still use gasoline in our cars, let's say. And it's not just about the engineering side of things. We can build an electric car, we can make an electric car, but there's all sorts of other things that are involved. I'm from uh, Detroit, originally near Detroit, and if you, uh, if you try to sell somebody from Detroit a car that looks like that, they'll say, no, <laughs> we want a car that looks like this, right? So that's part of it. There's an aesthetic component. It's not just engineering. It's not just about uh, you know, making uh, the engine work and gas miles and all that kind of stuff. It's about does it look cool? Does it look like something I want to use? Is it safe? All these other components. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you go to plug in your car, we know where gas stations are, but where do you sort of find a place to plug in your car? So it's not just about engineering the, the vehicle from, a, from an engine standpoint. You also have to have this infrastructure involved. That's just a, a small example of a problem I think that is an important one, but there's so many different components to it. So as these problems arise, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this in, in your work lives, you really need some creativity and some innovation to solve these unique problems. It's a different way of thinking. Um, things are just getting more complex. They're not getting more simple. As we have you know, five folks at remote sites, five folks at remote sites. Um, in addition to having folks in this room, I mean, it's clear how far we've come five years ago. This, this simply doesn't happen, and now it does. Uh, so yeah, things are getting more complex. Technology's playing a role, that sort of thing. Um, before I talk about what creativity is and define it and get into all that, I want to talk about what it's not, because there's an inherent Skepticism, a fair skepticism, to studying creativity and studying innovation. When I first started studying creativity, maybe 10 years ago, people said, what are you studying creativity for? It's like this magic kind of thing that happens. These days, people are more receptive to it, but there's still some bias against it. They think that it is magic, that it's something that can't be studied, that it's this invisible phenomenon, that it's this mystical, sort of magical kind of thing. And it's not. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now that it's not. There's, uh, there's things that can be understood about it. There's things that can be... Um, plan for in terms of facilitating it. There's things that can be done to enhance it, which isn't to say it's not complicated or that there's a lot of moving pieces to the puzzle, but we can certainly wrap our head around parts of it. Um, I want to get on, on, on the right page there. But what is it? When we talk about defining creativity, excuse me, we talk about defining creativity, we talk about two basic things. One, it's a generation of an idea or solution that's original or novel, meaning new or different or unique. And then two, that solves a problem, serves a function, um, is of high quality, that kind of thing. This is actually a, oh, this is kind of this is actually a uh, cheese slicer. It looks like a mouse trap, right? But it's actually a cheese slicer. I thought it was kind of, kind of original, right? This is uh, Mac people who has Mac computers in here. A lot of one, okay? Who knows what this is? You know what that is, right? This little magnetic thing, right? So what it is, is it, uh, it's your power cord, so you plug it in, um, and if you walk by and kick it, as I often do, uh, it pops out rather than taking your laptop and dumping it on the floor, which is, uh, serves a function. It's an original way of sort of solving a problem, but it does it in a, in a useful and uh, a high-quality way. 
Now, creativity usually involves both of these things. The reason I talk about it is this. Let's say I invented a uh, pair of shoes that made my feet really light, so I could walk around in my hands all day. Yeah, that's kind of different, but does it really serve a purpose? Not so much. So we can have originality, but in order to have creativity, we need to have an idea that does something, that serves a purpose. Now, originality is a big component to it. It's, a, it's an important part of it. But when we're talking about creativity and innovation, we're talking about things that are helpful or useful. Both of those things together. Does that make sense? Great. Um, innovation. So creativity is a generation of ideas that are novel and useful. Innovation is the implementation of those ideas. Meaning, we talk around, we could kick around a bunch of ideas in here today. We'd have creative idea generation. Until we take those ideas and get them implemented, whether it's uh, you know getting a product on the store shelves or whether it's uh, a new initiative or new program that's implemented, it's not innovation. So there's there's a process that's involved in taking an idea, that's a good idea, a useful idea, an original idea, and getting it actually implemented. So that's innovation. I'll use the two interchangeably just to try to confuse you, mainly because I hate seeing creativity, creativity over and over, and I sort of just like to interchange them. But when we talk about the strict definition, that's what we mean. Does that make sense too? Right? You guys are good. Everything's making sense. Before we keep going, I want to talk about um, the way we think about creativity in our lab. We think about it as a process, okay? We use the eight-stage process model. Don't memorize the eight stages, keep this in mind. It's not just about the single snap flash event that occurs. When we look at creativity, believe it or not, it actually involves a series of stages or processes. Things like figuring out what actually the problem is, gathering information about it, picking which information is most useful, selecting those ideas you're gonna play with, generating some real ideas, evaluating when those ideas are useful. Most of the time, you start over again because they're not always that useful. But if it keeps going, figuring out how you're going to implement it, and then once you do implement it, making sure that it's still working. So it's an entire range of things. It's not, when we think about creativity, we like to think about this, generating the ideas. In reality, a bunch of work goes in on the front end to make sure that the ideas that are generated are actually pretty good. Okay? Um, the other thing to keep in mind, it'd be nice if this was how it worked all the time. It doesn't. What happens is it's iterative. In other words, uh, you might get the one stage and then you start over at the beginning. You might get the last stage and then you start over in the middle. Point being, it's not this discrete set of steps. It's more muddy than that. So that's important to keep in mind. Creativity is messy. I wish it wasn't messy, but you know, really easy to study. But it's sort of a messy process. A fun messy process, but it's messy. The other thing I want you to keep in mind is that creative ideas can either be products, so like a really cool laptop, or it can be a process, like the assembly line, moving assembly line in this case. And creativity is not just about um, you know, making something you can hold in your hand, that's what we oftentimes think about, but sometimes it's a better way of doing things, um, a new and, and highly functional way of doing things. Does that make sense too? Oh, don't let me forget. I only get to use this once a year maybe. My graduate students always wonder why I have a stuffed animal on my desk. Now you know. There's a stuffed animal. Okay. The product improvement test. I'll read it out loud. You can read along with me. You take about five minutes, generate a few ideas, and we'll share some of them just to, just to have a good time. Okay. In the middle of this page is a sketch of a stuffed toy elephant, the kind you can buy at most toy stores for around $10. I actually had to change the price. This was old. It said five or six. I'm like, I don't think you can buy a toy for $5 anymore. $10. Inflation. It's about six, six, six inches tall and weighs about six ounces. It's based on this page. And the next one, list the cleverest, most interesting, and the usual ways you think of for changing this toy elephant so that children will have more fun playing with it. 
not worry about how much the change would cost. He can only about what would be what it would make it more fun to play with as a toy. Take about five minutes, generate a few ideas, and we'll share some and just chat a little bit about it. No pressure. Have fun. When we talk about creativity and innovation in organizations, in the workplace, um, what do you think it takes to be creative? What do you think is necessary? So at least sharing ideas with people. That's a huge one. We're off on a good start. Yeah, we're actually, that's sort of the, one of the biggest ones. We're going to talk about that at the end. This general feeling that it's okay to suggest some different ideas. Because believe it or not, it's a big barrier in a lot of organizations. There was a, a company, I was talking to the guys at Nike, a company a few years ago, not Nike, but a different company, I can't remember what it was. But every night when the people went home, they would move their desks around. So they would come in in the morning, and they didn't know where your stuff was. Like, they didn't find the new stuff. Which was an attempt to do that. This was actually probably taken too far because everyone got stressed out. Like, you know, let's make sure my kids, you know, you just want to know, you want to have a fun day to a certain degree. Uh, a better form of that was a company that had a room or an area that changed pretty consistently so that they didn't get settled. They could go to a place uh, to brainstorming and that sort of thing uh, that was consistently different. Um, but I thought, man, that, I could not work at a place that changed my desk up every night. It would just freak me out too much. But I, maybe some people. How much risk taking, and then sometimes it's not going to work out. And yeah, and we're actually you guys. You guys are leading me in great for the rest of the talk in the sense that these are a lot of things that that we're going to be touching on and the challenges to being innovative. It's easy to say we should be creative. We want to be creative. It's actually tougher to do than we might think. Yeah, you're fighting against the establishment to a certain degree, the bureaucracy of what was done before. Particularly if you want to do something different and novel, which is necessary for creativity. So absolutely. Other thoughts? Yeah. That's good. Movement one way. Uh, yeah, the sort of physical side of things, being able to, uh, oh, Google has all that kind of stuff. They have a gym in their place and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, yeah, sometimes just getting up and walking around and the change of environment helps. Yeah. I think sometimes people are afraid to share an idea they might have for fear that if they share it with the wrong person, that person's going to take it away from their Competition idea. kind of stuff. Yeah, rather we, we all benefit from an idea. Things get made with single individuals, and they're the ones that are recognized. So, yeah, in an environment like that, that makes creativity tougher. You don't want to share ideas. You don't want to bounce ideas off of each other, certainly. Yeah. In fact, we, we did research on that, and I can, you can cite things in the future. That never happens if you can cite our, our study and, and say that reduces creativity. We found exactly that. Others have missed a hand. But. Yeah, um, organizations recognizing uh, risk taking. Uh, recognizing, taking chances, recognizing when things are successful is a very important thing. And it's a challenge at the same time uh, to a certain degree as well. So, yeah. Other thoughts, comment? Okay. Let's uh, start chatting as we fix a couple tech things, but we'll be good. Okay. One thing I want to convey, and it's already been conveyed uh, by you guys, so I'm not telling you anything particularly new. Well, when we think about creativity, it's not just about people in isolation. It's not just about one person coming up with an idea. These days, any innovative endeavor, or the vast majority of innovative endeavors, involves people working in groups, sharing ideas with others, whether it's implementation of the idea in a group or sort of coming up with ideas as a group. It's not just about single people, it's about groups of individuals. It's also about organizations, whether an organization has the resources to pursue ideas, whether they have the capability of actually implementing something like that. And then it's a broader environment. It's, uh, 
is the public going to be welcoming to an idea and the time for that? Um, you know, the, uh, the economic downturn right now has, has really had an impact on uh, the way people approach innovation. Some people have been more innovative as a result because there's a new niche that, that's occurred. People are trying to save money, so there's sort of a new market for some things. Things like Walmart, things like that are doing really well. Um, and at the same time, some of the organizations aren't able to spend the resources on being as innovative and have dropped off a little bit. So the environment uh, matters. The, the point is here is it's not any one of these things, it's all of these things together. We call it a multi-level phenomenon. You don't, don't pay attention to that. Understand it's complex. That's all I care about. Anybody have an iPhone? I'm obsessed with my iPhone. Okay. Um, my wife hates my iPhone too because uh, I used to check my email a lot and I check my email all the time. Um, so when we think about the implementation of the iPhone, how the iPhone came about, we think about an individual. We have uh, Steve Jobs at Apple that had this you know, new idea. Huge group of engineers with a lot of talent to, to be able to do something like this. An organization had the resources to pursue that, to hire engineers that had the expertise to do something like that, as well as manufacture it, as well as the ties to places like AT&T and Singular to actually make the, the plan come about. And then an environment. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, somebody said something like this. Let's say, I don't need that. It's dumb. I, I can use my computer. I can use my whatever. People started getting more and more um, having greater expectations with the technology, so the time was right for something like that. Point being, it's all these things together that leads to innovation, not any one of them. Here's the thing, unfortunately. As we think about what it takes to be innovative and be creative, what we realize very quickly is that what's necessary for one component often runs in opposition of what's necessary in another component. I'll give you an example. I can, if somebody came to me and said, um, what does it take to um, hire creative people? I can tell you what it takes to hire creative people. You can hire those creative people. Another person comes to me and says, what does it take to uh, facilitate creativity in a group? I can say, you, know, you need to do this sort of thing, that sort of thing. It's when you consider both of these things together, you realize that there's some real opposition, which is a real challenge to innovation. I'll give you some examples. This is my favorite picture of this guy. Like he hates people. There's not one working with anybody. Okay, we take people that like to work alone. What do we do when we take people that like to work alone? You have this slide in front of you. We put them in teams, right? Because we need teams to do stuff together. So really creative people, this guy, likes autonomy. He likes to think he's right. He likes uh, sort of challenge and working on his own. That's all the things that are necessary for individuals to be creative. But then we ask them to work in teams. That's, that's an example of what we call innovation paradox. In other words, what's necessary at certain levels compete with what's necessary at another level. Um, there's been a lot of work what they call uh, uh, the macro level of strategic decision making. This is upper level management kind of stuff. What we're more interested in is the folks that are on the front lines actually involved in um, doing some of this stuff. In other words, the folks that are helping to manage these teams that are actually trying to be creative. And the thing about these guys is they have to answer both the, the, these folks they have to answer to those folks, which is a real challenge for leaders. I'm less concerned in many ways with, with these guys. Certainly that, that has a place in understanding um, innovation. But I'm more concerned with the folks in the middle being pulled in so many different directions when it comes to being creative and innovative. We'll talk about some of those things. Plus, I love this picture because they're making donuts, which is also fun. You can't claim that they're happy about it. They love making donuts, you know. Picture day, good day for them. What did we do? We uh, actually went through the literature and we found what they call 14 different paradoxes. I'm not going to talk about 14. I'm going to talk about three kind of fun ones. Um, 
One of the other things that we also realized is that when we started talking to organizations and reading about real organizations, there were some really creative solutions out there that we didn't know about just by studying things in the academic literature. And sometimes you got to go out there and see what folks are doing. That was a big lesson for me, one of the things that I learned, that it's always important for me to come to places like this and ask you guys questions, come to places like uh, Google and, and even smaller organizations and ask them questions and see what they're doing to deal with some of these, these issues because they have some really unique solutions. Let's talk about some of them. The first paradox is uh, what they call the, the dual expertise paradox. Um, in order to be creative, believe it or not, you have to have a decent amount of expertise. But what I mean is you have to have a pretty good background in what you're working on so that you can come up with new ideas um, within that domain. Uh, Bill Gates is a great example. Um, Bill Gates spent a lot of time writing code for Microsoft when Microsoft first started. He actually spent time writing the code and generating um, the product himself and built up this, this sort of background and expertise. Where the paradox comes into play is, is if you spend all that time building up that expertise, you don't get a lot of chance, you don't get a lot of chances to practice your leadership skills. So you might be really great, a really great engineer, you might be a really great architect, but you don't know how to lead a team, you don't know how to work with people. And you need both of those. You need the expertise and you need the, the capacity to, uh, to lead people and the skills to lead people. And that's a real challenge for, for organizations that are, that are trying to bring leaders up through their ranks that are capable of managing organizations. What are some solutions? There's a really creative solution that we're starting to see more and more often, which is when we talk about leadership, it's not just about one person. Sometimes it's two people, not just three, but usually it's two. And places like uh, Pixar, Hewlett Packard, um, Chanel, and there's a historical example um, as well that there's sort of one person that was the expert or the, the big idea person, and then somebody else very good at managing. And it was through this team leadership that innovation came about. And it wasn't just necessary for one person to have both a leadership skill and the background expertise, that they could share that. We're starting to see more of that, which is a really unique solution to this paradox. That's not always the case. Sometimes organizations actually have to be creative, or sometimes organizations have to have leaders, um, single leaders instead of shared leadership. And in those instances, it's really important for leaders, or for senior leaders, to give those lower level leaders a chance, basically a chance to screw up a little bit and, and practice leading project teams, get some practice in working with people, building those leadership skills. We have undergrads that work in our lab, and I give them little projects managing other people just so they can build that skill set. Their job is to build expertise in the content areas that we're working on, but it's also really important for them to understand what it's like to manage projects, manage people. And it's a risk in some ways on our part because my graduate students have to supervise them, make sure everything's going okay, and I have to manage, uh, supervise the graduate students and the undergrads, make sure everything's going okay. But it's important in the long run, and our lab runs better because of it. That's a couple of unique um, solutions there. The creativity cost one, this is always the big one, right? As many of you have mentioned, actually, creativity involves um, doing something new, doing something different, and, it, and as a result, requires time, requires resources. When, uh, when you want to build a product that's never been made before, there's not machinery for it, for example. You have to get a new machine to actually make your new prototype of a project. That takes money. If you want to do something different, the process hasn't in place, isn't in place in terms of how to do that. You don't have the forms, you don't have the, the, the technology, you don't have any of that stuff. It takes time and money to get that. Well, organizations, don't like to spend money, they like to make money, right? And they, to the extent that you're spending a lot of things, um, it cuts into your cost 
they're a cousin to your bottom line, and, and folks don't always know that. So how do we be innovative and at the same time keep costs low? One relatively easy way is to make sure that pursuing multiple ideas, you have to pursue multiple, multiple ideas, because not everyone's going to work. You're going to be creative, let me tell you this. You're going to be creative, you have to spread the wealth in terms of trying different things, because the rule of thumb is actually one out of 20 ideas, creative ideas are going to succeed. 19 out of 20 ideas generally don't work out. So you've got to try lots of different stuff to make sure that um, you're being uh, sustaining your innovation. But if you can have a common thing among them, common scaffolding, we say, that's one way to keep costs down, but at the same time pursuing multiple ideas. Um, keep, keep in mind that uh, creativity and innovation is a process, right? Kicking around ideas in, in a group meeting, kicking around ideas when you're just generating ideas or when you're just sort of talking about things is cheap. When you take an idea and run with it too quickly, you get to the prototype phase, you get to when you have a website, you get to where you're hiring people to implement something and you realize it's not going to work out, that's when it gets expensive. So spending some time on that front end, gathering the right information, thinking about things before you implement it, can save you some money long term. Now, you don't want to miss opportunities when they come up. If something comes up, you want to capitalize on it. But rushing to things, particularly if you're looking for a sustained innovation strategy, can get you into some trouble. Spend a little bit of time thinking about it, making sure that everything's uh, in line, save some money there. Um, in some ways, I don't have to tell you guys this because we're clearly um, doing this. But um, keep your, uh, keep your uh, options open with regard to technology. I work with a lot of uh, architectural engineers. They have uh, some, some really cool software that like these screens around you and there's like screens on the floor and all this really kind of cool stuff. So they build these buildings and they can bring folks in and they can walk around in this virtual building and it literally surrounds them, you know, floor to ceiling kind of stuff. And folks can see the mistakes that are being made, how they need to adjust that before they even build a model, before they even start the building process. Save them a ton of money in the long term. And that's sort of emergent technology. I mean, the, the folks that are visiting from uh, uh, teleconferencing in, they don't have to drive here. They get to sort of, you know, get to talk, they don't have to drive here. So there are things that can be done to share ideas and exchange ideas um, that are opening up because of technology that I think we need to be receptive to. And then the last one is do remember that not all, not all solutions need to be particularly expensive. There's a great story by Jonathan Cow who went into a uh, consultant with the Navy. And what the Navy wanted to do was build one of these really great um, smart boards like this. But it was a huge one, like a million dollars, kind of a couple million dollars. Kind of thing. And they said, no, we want to do this because we want to you know, be innovative and be creative. And he said, you know what? You know what you guys want? You want a space where everybody can share ideas. Build a really big wall, but just put a whiteboard up. Then you can share ideas. So that's what they did. Now, the whiteboard is like one of the biggest whiteboards ever made. It was like $100,000, huge whiteboard. But it wasn't $2 million, and it worked just as well. Being creative or facilitating a creative environment isn't just about you know, cool colors or you know, bean bags or anything like that. It's about the idea behind it. If you want to have a place where people share ideas, you can facilitate that in a number of different ways. And it's not always expensive, is the point being. Sometimes it is, but it's not always. Okay, and then the last one, uh, last paradox we'll talk about, the feedback rigidity paradox. One of the things that organizations need to do is they need to ask their end user, or their customer, or their client, or whatever, if they're going to like the idea that they're kicking around in the idea generation which is good, you need to do that. But if you're so dictated by what your customer says they want, or your client or um, end user says they want, you're not gonna do anything particularly novel or different. 
So you want to get feedback, but you don't want to be so bound to that feedback that you don't see different things that might emerge, right? A few different things you can do here. <clears throat> you guys ever heard of Skunk Works, Lockheed Martin, Skunk Works? <coughs> what happened was uh, around World War II, um, they wanted to, Lockheed Martin, a uh, defense contractor, make planes and bombs and guns and all that stuff. They, uh, they <clears throat> wanted to do some really different and novel things, but they found that the folks in the organization were sort of naysayers, like we talked about earlier. No, we can't do that. It's going to cost too much. No, we can't do that. So one of the folks there said, look, I'm going to take a bunch of really bright engineers. We're going to take them off-site. We're going to take them into this facility. We're going to give them the resources that they need, and we're going to um, let them do what they have to do away from the organization itself. And they came up with some really, really novel stuff, some really, really novel stuff, of aircraft and other things. They call them the Skunk Works. Other organizations did the same thing. Uh, remember the Razor phone, the Motorola, the really thin Razor phone? Motorola did the same thing for uh, in about a year, maybe a little over a year. They locked a bunch of engineers uh, into a facility and sort of generated that really, really quickly. And that's a really, really short period of time for, for phones. Um, so that's one thing. Avoiding feedback, at least initially, until you get to a prototype phase, and then you, then you check things out. Um, the other thing, does anybody have a, um, an iPod? Anybody use iPods? Okay. Um, if you had asked me about an iPod five years ago, I said, I don't need an iPod. I had a really cool MP3 player. I took it and used it to the gym. It was rugged. You couldn't hurt it. It was great. And I said, no, I don't need this thin, slick-looking thing. I got what I need. It's going to work fine. And then my wife got an iPod, and she handed it to me. If you've ever held on to it and sort of put it in your hands, right, it just feels really, really nice. It's like heavy away. It's kind of cool. Um, so sometimes you have to get a product far enough along, or an idea far enough along, or a prototype, or a website, or whatever, far enough along, that before you ask for feedback, you make sure it's at that phase that people can hold it in their hands, or look at it, and get a real feel for what it might be like, rather than, what do you think about this? Show them what it might be like. And you get a different reaction. And then ask the right people. So I went and visited uh, Lockheed Martin Center for Innovation. They got a really cool center down in uh, Virginia. Uh, that has literally a lighthouse inside the building, a lighthouse inside the building. And I, I said, what do you guys do with this, this feedback rigidity kind of thing? And they said, well, we ask the right people. So rather than, because uh, they work with uh, different branches of the military, rather than asking the Army and the Navy um, specifically, they ask specific branches of the Army, Navy, uh, Marine Corps, et cetera. In other words, folks that are actually thinking about a 10-year timeline, um, not folks that are thinking about tomorrow, folks that are thinking about 10 years from now, and those types of folks give you more feedback that's, that's critical to being innovative than the folks who are thinking about tomorrow. So when you get feedback from people, asking the right people that are going to be useful for talking about really innovative things is important. Which is, I never thought about that before. This is why it's so important for me to go and talk to these different organizations. Okay, questions about the paradox kind of stuff. I just wanted to sort of let you whistle about the challenges that are associated with it. We could spend all day talking about 14 paradoxes, but we're not. I just wanted to show you, and I think you guys know this already, that it's not easy. That what, what's necessary sometimes in one way counters what's necessary in another. Um, and managing that is actually pretty difficult. It can be done, and the folks that, that, that do it um, are pretty creative in, the, in their solutions to it, but it's uh, not inherently easy. Okay, what we're going to move to next. We don't know everything, but we know some things. So I want to talk about our best guesses for what it's, what's necessary for leading for innovation. As you guys work on your project teams, as you manage different projects with different things, these are some of the things that hopefully you guys can implement as you manage um, different innovative tasks. 
The first one, as I alluded to, is building a strong uh, set of expertise. If you are um, going to be working in engineering, you need to know a little bit about engineering. You need to have a pretty good background for a variety of reasons. Things like um, understanding where to allocate resources. So Bill Gates, my Bill Gates example. If you, Bill Gates, you know, writes code and he has five software engineers come to his, uh, his office and they say, well, we're going to work on a new Windows. We want to take 10 guys and, and work on it for six months. Well, if he knows what it takes to actually do that, he can say, well, let's take five guys and have to be in three months. Or let's take 20 guys and have to be in two years. Uh, because he has that background, because he has that expertise. If he doesn't have that expertise, he says, okay, you know, good luck and see how that kind of all goes. So having that, that knowledge is really important you know, in terms of allocating resources, um, getting people to trust you, like having credibility and faith, you know, you have to sort of know your shop, so to speak. Um, and then providing uh, and monitoring um, performance, running feedback and, and monitoring performance, you just sort of have to know your P's and Q's in terms of really what's going on. So a good background and what it is that you're working on is necessary. And that's not always easy because um, it takes time. Like as leaders, if we're managing anything, we're all busy. And to the extent that you have to build additional knowledge into, into your daily lives, it's kind of tough, but it's worthwhile and necessary at the end of the day. Creative thinking skills. This is actually somewhat surprising to some folks. What I mean is, when we think about leading for creativity, we think about the team members generating creative ideas and then the team or the leader facilitating that, which is true to a certain degree. What's, what, what leaders need creative thinking skills for, however, is recognizing the value of the ideas that are generated, meaning um, if they're thinking outside the box and you don't, you won't recognize that as being important or having value or having utility. So creative thinking skills, not necessarily to generate ideas, but to recognize the potential. Okay? And sometimes leaders are going to help kick around ideas. Sometimes they need to get in there and get their hands dirty and talk about some different things. But creative thinking skills are also important in terms of, like I said, recognizing the potential impact. Um, leaders also need social skills, believe it or not, uh, which may, may surprise some of you and some of the leaders that you've had. Um, but again, we have to think about what, what we're talking about when we mention creativity and leading for innovation which is people are doing stuff that's different, that's never been done before, oftentimes you know, in, in time frames that people want results quicker than they can be done. And you have to take care of people. You have to say, you okay, you're doing a good job. You have to sort of encourage them, reinforce them. Because they're really operating outside the norm of things, they need more pats on the back than, than normal. Um, it's a necessary part of um, supporting innovation. Um, another big thing that we're going to really hammer the point on here in a little bit is that subordinates have to feel comfortable sharing ideas. A creative idea, it sounds good. Yeah, let's generate creativity. But a creative idea is different. It's different from what was done in the past. And it can be very scary and, and um, threatening to say, you know what, the way we used to do things is wrong. I have a better way of doing that. And to a lot of leaders, that can seem very, very threatening. But leaders have to be receptive to those ideas. Otherwise, those ideas will stop coming. Leader may not agree, they might say, you know what, I understand where you're coming from, but uh, let's look into some other things, whatever. But if you discourage them, see that's a bad idea, don't bring an idea like that to me, you're going to stop that pipeline of ideas coming to you. Not every idea is going to be a winner, but you need to have that pipeline. So, um, subordinates need to feel comfortable with sharing them with you and among team members. Organizational knowledge. This is an important one. Um, 
you need to understand the resources and capabilities that you have in your organization so that you can capitalize on the, on the things that arrive. If you don't know, you might not think that you can implement an idea, you might think that you can and you can't. Um, you have to know sort of who the players are, who to talk to, uh, so that you can get sort of those things done and accomplished. So knowing the organization, where things are important, kind of boring and film for Paying attention to what's going on. One of the key things that leaders do is to uh, seize opportunities, recognize opportunities, keep an eye for things that are arising, trends, and then work within those trends, capitalize on those uh, once they occur. And again, you have to be able to uh, fit those ideas within the broader organizational framework um, so that those ideas can ultimately get implemented. Uh, along these lines, um, you have to know who can take your idea and implement it. So let's say you have a great idea for a new website, you have a great idea for a new product. If you don't know who can build it, if you don't know who can market it, who can sell it, it's going to stop there. It's going to stop the idea phase. So you need to know who the IT support is. You need to know uh, who can help bring this idea to fruition. So part of it's organizational knowledge. Part of it's the capability of convincing others that your idea is worthwhile. And social skills are involved there as well. <clears throat> the last one that we're going to talk about, which I think is uh, the most important one, because we're going to touch on it for a variety of reasons, is establishing the context. One of the key things, and this is based on my personal experience as well as my read on the literature, the key things a leader can do is create the right environment for innovation. Okay? Places like Google, places like Pixar, they do it well. They do it right. Um, we call it creative climate, about facilitating creative climate, um, which means, as you guys can sort of imagine, taking ideas um, that are emerging and people feel comfortable making the environment such that people feel comfortable sharing ideas, that those ideas are recognized and valued, um, and that they're welcomed by both leaders as well as uh, team members. This is fun. Okay? Let's turn to fun again. One of the key things that uh, a leader can do is to, hey, make mistakes. You don't want to screw up all the time as a leader. Don't get me wrong. But I tell you what, if you're a leader and you screwed up or you tell a story about how you screwed up earlier in your career, all of a sudden you tell people, you know what, it's okay to take chances. It's okay to take a risk. This is scary to do. I tell the story to my undergrads about how I uh, scheduled an experiment um, when I was a graduate student for 3 in the morning. I thought it was supposed to be 3 in the afternoon, but the wrong button. So people showed up to run to participate in my experiment at 3 in the morning. This is not a good thing when you're a graduate student having this happen to you. And I don't want to tell that story because it makes me look stupid. Okay? It makes me look silly to my, my undergrads. And I'm supposed to I'm supposed to be like the guy, I'm supposed to be the professor, you're not supposed to know stuff. And I but I tell this story so that they know that mistakes are gonna happen. But what's important is when mistakes happen, they don't happen twice. That's you don't want to have the same mistake happen twice. That's bad. But when mistakes do happen and they're worth something, then you capitalize on it. That's what most of these pictures are. This is not a good example. This is just an example of a screw up, which is going to happen. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> But all these other things are actually mistakes. So silly putty was intended to be a uh, type of rubber. So we're trying to do things in World War II. Teflon was uh, an engine coating. The post-it note was intended to be a higher strength glue, but then it didn't really stick. And we're like, oh, this didn't work. But the thing is, somebody said, you know what? We could use that for this. So a mistake happened, but somebody capitalized on it. So you can't be the type of leader that says, well, you cannot screw up. You, you can't do that again. Get that out of you. Then you stop hearing about these other things, and you stop recognizing the opportunities. 
Lenda, all that kind of stuff. Crazy Glue is actually supposed to be, uh, they're trying to make lenses for uh, guns in World War II, and they kept sticking everything, and they're like, this is actually pretty sticky, let's see what we can do with that. Again, somebody capitalized on that. Corn flakes, they, they, uh, they let it dry out too long, they, they laid the, uh, the corn that, that they cooked, and they went to roll it, and it flaked off instead of rolling up into a nice roll, and they're like, oh, maybe we can use that. Corn flakes came about as a mistake. These things are going to happen in organizations, again, capitalizing it. Capitalizing is the key. Uh, okay, I'll talk about one of our studies. Plus, I get to show pictures of the bikers, which is fun. We ran a study recently. We had two conditions. Basically, had a nice condition. These guys, you want to work with those guys. They're fun. What are the mean conditions? You don't want to work with those guys. Those are mean. We had confederates that acted as team members. It was in a virtual environment, so it was a chat room. So they acted like they were other team members. In reality, they were uh, in on the study, working for us, so to speak. But they went into two conditions, the participants did. Nice, they call it low, high psychological safety, you feel comfortable sharing your ideas. Low psychological safety, what does it mean to you? Nobody likes your ideas. Um, we assessed creative potential, we didn't actually do this, I like to show that, that makes you know, our, our experiments seem more interesting or not. We didn't give a Rubik's Cube that doesn't have dots, we didn't do that either. They did have to fill out some questionnaires, and actually some of the things, similar things that you guys did here today, plus a, a longer battery. Um, so we assessed their creative potential, we had an idea about whether they were creative or not on paper, whether they had the potential to be creative. And then they did two things. The first one they did before they were nice or mean in the, in the study, they generated uh, ideas for a senior class gift, a really cool, different senior class gift. They gave them lots of money, come up with something fun. Senior class gift. And then folks were either really nice to them, the other team members were either really nice to them, or they were uh, either really mean to them. Your ideas are terrible, I can't believe you came up with that. Or, what a great idea, we like it. And then they generated um, a second uh, task, or generated a solution to a second task, which was, uh, that the dormer of the future, what's it gonna look like, that kind of thing. Um, and this is what we found. If you like graphs, pay attention. If you don't, pay attention to me, so I'm going to tell you what happened. Um, people who were uh, high creative potential on paper looked very creative. It didn't matter what condition they were in. You can put them in the nice condition, the mean condition. They were pretty creative uh, across the board in terms of creative performance. They were creative no matter what. Here's the cool part. People who on paper were not creative. In other words, they would not be recognized as a creative person if we tested them or assessed them. You put them in the right environment, they were either just as creative as the folks who on paper should be creative, or in this case, slightly more creative than the folks who should be creative. And here's the, here's the, the walkway here, the takeaway. A nice environment where people are willing to share ideas. Well, let me say it this way. A negative environment where people are, are not willing to share ideas. You're going to have some people are going to be creative. But if you take the environment and make it such that everybody feels comfortable, you're essentially going to double the performance of your organization, meaning not only are you going to get creative ideas from those that are quote-unquote creative, but you're also going to get creative ideas from those who maybe don't think that they're creative, or might not feel that they're creative, or might not even be creative on, on other things in the past. So a nice environment doesn't do anything but help you. It doesn't hurt anything. People will be nice to each other. But the, the potential is pretty big. You're going to get a lot of creative ideas from a lot of different people, not just those um, that have that high creative potential. The other thing, and this graph is somewhat hard to interpret, so focus on me, um, is we also assess their reactions to what other people said. In other words, um, they evaluated other people's ideas in addition to having their ideas evaluated. And what we found was when people were mean to them, they were mean to the other participant as well. When people were nice to them, they were nice too. So 
what we have is a potential spiraling effect. In other words, somebody's mean to me, I'm going to be mean to them. I mean to them, they're going to be mean to me. It's going to get worse and keep going down. You're going to really limit your creative performance. On the other hand, being nice to somebody, oh, they're nice to me, I'm nice to them, sort of can work upwards, right? Again, people need to feel comfortable sharing different ideas. That's what we're talking about. Um, boy, this is scary. I'm only talking about two things. We'll walk away from this monster. I get asked two questions a lot by organizations. First question is, how can I tell if somebody's creative or not? I want to hire creative people or whatever. We think about this as creative potential. A lot of things go into play here. We did one every thinking task. There's a whole host of other things, expertise, intelligence, all that kind of stuff. That only tells you a little piece of the puzzle. What we want to get to here, which is innovative performance at the organizational level, lots of, lots of crazy things going on here in the middle. You can have all sorts of creative potential, but unless you take people and put them in the right environment, give them the right resources, surround them with the right people, you're not going to get here. Creativity is not just about this. Getting here is a whole host of things going on. Right people in the right environments. The short version, in reality, there's a lot of other things going on. Does that make sense? It's an important point. And one I think you guys understand. Okay, we'll do uh, takeaways, and I'm going to open up the questions. That's where I wanted to get anyway, so I'm on track to do that. The first one, I think, I think innovation is important. I don't think every organization needs to be innovative. Um, in fact, I tell a lot of organizations that they shouldn't be because it's difficult. And sometimes if all they want to do is make money, they should make the process better and just do a better job of what they do. A lot of organizations need to be innovative. Um, and I think the big problems of today and, and the future require some novel solutions. I think it's an important thing. Um, it's what we call multifaceted and multi-level. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And again, it's tied to this uh, complexity thing. There's people involved, there's teams involved, there's organizations involved, there's environments involved. Um, there's lots of moving pieces to it. Not a simple phenomenon. Saying we need to be innovative um, is a bigger statement than most folks might think. A lot of work is done in teams. People getting along, being uh, capable of sharing expertise, having different types of expertise. Everybody's the same in the team. Not a big benefit there. It's taking people from different backgrounds with different views and putting that together, getting them get along, which is not always really easy. Um, that's where the, the truly innovative stuff comes from. Lots of work are done in teams. That's an important part. Leadership's a huge part of it. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I study leadership. Uh, I study innovation and leadership independently oftentimes. But the fact is, the more you keep coming back to it, the bigger role that leaders can play in managing this process, creating the right environment, um, helping good things happen. It's also really hard on leaders because they get pulled in so many directions. They get pulled by the team members. They get pulled by the upper management of why things are costing too much. And the lower folks are saying, we need more time. And they're the ones that oftentimes get caught in the middle. But if they do it right, good things happen. And I think if you're going to take away one thing, we need to be creative. How do we do it? It's facilitating a positive creative climate, um, which involves a lot of things. But the biggest thing is when somebody generates something that's a, an idea that's a little different, don't say that it's stupid. Don't sort of discount it. You don't need to hug on a you know, big person. Everybody needs to get along and be best friends. But being respectful of your colleagues and being open to different ideas and focusing on ideas and not the people, if you really care about generating innovative uh, solutions and creative solutions, you can do that. The creative climate thing. Um, exciting avenues for the future. This is just uh, sort of thinking about some of the things that are happening. 
I work with a lot of engineers and architects. They do all sorts of really cool stuff on the tech side. Things like this, we actually get to share ideas with, with folks in, in different sites, my folks in different sites, um, is, uh, is a huge thing. Because in the past, you had to sort of fly somewhere or drive somewhere to actually work together, and now you can actually see folks face to face, and that's pretty neat. Um, one of the things we're really looking at is trying to figure out solutions to the paradoxes. We have some ideas, but there's still a lot of uh, ambiguity out there. And then, as always, figuring out the interplay between individuals, teams, organizations, and environments. Not a simple thing. If it was simple, I guess I would have had a job, so I can't complain too much. Right? I'm done relatively early. I wanted to be, because I wanted to open things up for you guys. Questions, comments, or thoughts? You know, there's a big debate in the literature about whether you should reward the creativity or whether you should just uh, allow it to emerge, what they call intrinsic satisfaction, or intrinsic motivation. Because if you're passionate about it, and then you're going to work harder on it, and as soon as you start you know, giving somebody a bonus for being creative, then supposedly um, people think that that will demotivate them because it's only about the money at that point, so they, they stop doing it. Which um, organizations struggle, the folks that I talked to, Lockheed and Nike, all these folks, struggle with how to reward it? Because so many really uh, creative ideas fail. You, you can't just base it on whether ideas succeed. You really have to base it on whether um, people are generating a number of different ideas, which is a hard thing to model from a performance standpoint. Um, I think it can be done in other ways, um, which is recognizing uh, contributions informally, not necessarily having that stuff in a formal uh, performance appraisal system. Um, but it's in some ways contingent on the nature of the organization. And then, um, in some ways, really just about making folks feel comfortable uh, facilitating that idea. I don't think there's one perfect solution in terms of performance. It's a hard thing that we're going to struggle with. One of my students is actually doing a project on that. You're talking about um, how important it is for leaders to set yeah. the tone to make yeah. the environment a creative environment right. for, for employees to know that it's okay to be creative and, and make ideas and, and suggestions yeah. amongst their team. Um, but so many times you run into leaders, you know, we, one of the classes I'm taking, we talk about leading, leading from behind. Uh -huh. And that's a great, it's a great concept, but I think there's a lot of leaders that don't have the confidence in themselves to allow their team members to take on some of those roles. Yeah. For fear that if they allow that to happen and that fails, then it reflects on them. Or if it succeeds, then maybe they don't get the kudos for that. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, and I was sort of tied to the, the mistakes that admitting your mistakes is a pretty frightening thing to do because you feel like bad, uh, but it's a necessary thing to do. So yeah, it takes a special kind of person to manage those challenges and to not not always be the one that's getting the credit, not always be the uh, and if things fail, sort of you know being able to to manage that and deal with that. It does take a lot of confidence. Um, I don't think that every leader can do it. Is actually a somewhat unique capability because it's so challenging, because it's so difficult. But I do think the best organizations have good folks in those positions and value them and reward them and be able to balance. But yeah, um, it's tough and not everybody can do it, and I agree with you. Yeah. One of the things that makes it really challenging is I think there's different leadership styles involved. And what we see is that you might have a very charismatic leader that looks like they're the one, that they're sort of the figurehead, the one that's uh, always giving the speeches and always doing the stuff. And Apple's a good example. Steve Jobs is always the one that's on, on stage and he likes the limelight. 
in reality, there's actually a partner of his that does a lot of the managing and handling and that sort of thing behind the scenes, but doesn't get any of that recognition. In reality, what's going on is it is a shared leadership model, but from the outside, we don't see that. So getting a feel for how often this occurs, uh, just on a cursory level, without really getting in and seeing behind the scenes meetings that happen in organizations, is really tough. I think it's much more common than we think. I think this, this notion of a single leader is either outdated or just uh, a certain degree of misconception. But there is a number of shared leadership models out there that we don't know a lot about. The target access folks is no one let us in on their secret meetings on the things that they're doing, so unfortunately. But we don't know. So part of the question was, uh, so Google has this 20% rule. For those of you that don't know about it, it's uh, basically one day a week, they get to do whatever they want. So they get to play with whatever ideas they think are interesting, and then the rest of the time they dedicate towards um, organizational requirements and projects and that sort of thing. And I think Gmail uh, occurred as a result, and a number of other really innovative things have, have come out from this. Project. It actually uh, started at 3M, they had a 15% rule and Google up to 20. Um, so I've talked about that both with uh, the folks at Google and I've also talked about it with folks at Lockheed Martin. And they have this a similar issue, which is they, um, at Lockheed, they budget everything um, to a given contract. So they need to show a number of hours that are dedicated. So they really can't take this time and just say, this is playtime, this is fun time. Um, it's important, it's, it's necessary, it's, it's um, time for innovation, but clients want to see how that sort of shows up on the books. Um, they have been toying with the idea, and I'm not sure if it's been implemented, toying with the idea of, I don't know if they call it an innovation time slot or something, but facilitating that, incorporating that into um, the various budgets and seeing how the clients respond to it, because they recognize how important it is to have free thinking time. But it's a fight, particularly for those, those that have to record and document their time. Folks at Google don't really have to do that. You know, they're writing code. It's not X number of hours of events. Um, but I, I think more and more folks are recognizing the importance of innovation to the extent that they do, they're receptive to things like that. So part of that's a selling on top of senior management to these other folks that we need to have some time set aside for this kind of thing and recognizing and setting up that system you know, for you guys, which isn't easy, but it's necessary at times. So um, implementing something like that will be difficult and you have to fight against some things. Um, but I think it can be done and other organizations are trying to deal with it in similar environments. Yeah, it's a broad organizational culture thing, um, which is sort of tied to the performance appraisal question. If you start really making this discrete, how creative were we you today, one to five kind of thing, um, it can sort of reduce this overall idea of let's come up with creative solutions and capture on that, capture them from anyone, anywhere, at any time. And some organizations do that really well, like IDO, for example, is really, um, they really push for a low ego kind of environment where it's not any one person's idea, if things succeed, it's the organization's idea. And, and they really have to socialize folks when they get hired into that organization to not push so hard to have my idea and have it be our idea. Uh, but it takes some time and it really occurs through a strong socialization um, process. Yeah, you gotta recognize um, that it takes time to do that. You gotta recognize that everyone's part of this organization, what the organization does well, reflects well on it, everyone. Yeah, they're, uh, they're a company that was originally founded by here at Cali out of Stanford. And they're essentially a think tank organization that really recognizes the case study for being a really, really innovative company. 
and they don't do one thing, companies will come to them with a problem, and they will come up with solutions with a variety of expertise. So they have all sorts of different people that work there, engineers and marketing people and all sorts of different stuff. And they're just really, really bright people with a wide range of skill sets to solve problems for large organizations. Uh, I think so, yeah. I think they're publicly traded, yeah. Yeah. I mean it's not a it's not a government organization, it's not a think tank or anything, you know, government sort of thing. Um, they're somewhat smaller because they're not producing, you know, mass producing products or anything, but uh, high level talent and really recognized in the innovation community. They're a fun case study, you can read about them. I'm really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do to a certain degree. So, as in, as in, like the the senior management folks have a really creative idea. They want to get like implemented. They, they oh, they think <laughs> so. It's not. It's not. You don't think it's a particularly good idea. Right, but you want to convey to them. Yeah. Think it's gonna work. Yeah. Um. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> which one? Which one is an organization where there's there's feedback both ways, right, and they recognize feedback from both sides. Well, ultimately. Um, the good organizations, when they make decisions, aren't making them in an isolated boardroom. They're making them with feedback and input from all levels of the organization. And if I'm having a conversation with somebody that's in upper management, the conversation is you increase buy-in, you increase the quality of your ideas by getting feedback from everyone, and overall things turn out better as long as you're getting, when you get participation from multiple sources. Um, so that's how I would try to convince them, whether they would you know, listen to uh, other folks in that way. I don't know. I mean, sometimes there's just barriers to it, you know? It's, it's unfortunate. But again, the, the idea is, are they receptive? They should have been receptive initially to those ideas. But, yeah, when you want to talk about convincing someone, you have to go to the bottom line numbers and have a better idea and all that kind of stuff. And that's going to be beneficial. The underlying problem, of course, is um, it shouldn't have gotten to that point. The participation should have been occurred earlier. I think for different organizations, how that comes about is going to vary. Um, in fact, I had a conversation with uh, one of my students that just visited Procter & Gamble, and one of the things that they do is in the early stages of uh, discussing an idea, no one is allowed to say anything critical whatsoever. Like They're just not allowed to do it. They just don't say it. Um, which may be too far in the stream, but I think the basic idea is recognizing when ideas are in the gestation phase, that you're sort of welcoming up of those ideas. How that's manifested, I think it's just going to vary on the people that you're working with and sort of how, how it comes about. Um, and I think we've all had experience in many ways with people shooting down ideas. What do they say? That's just going to cost too much, or we don't have time resources for that, or basically coming up with anything that shuts down an idea before it's had a, a chance to be fleshed out. Uh, in terms of you know, how you facilitate that, I think as a leader, um, role modeling is a big thing. So um, folks look to leaders for guidance in terms of you know, what, what to do, what's appropriate in that organization, provided they, they have respect and they should. Um, um, so to the extent that somebody generates an idea, and the way the leader responds, I think they really set the tone for the way the meeting goes, um, what's valued, what's rewarded. Um, again, set, sets the tone for, for that kind of stuff. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, if a leader completely discounts the ideas Maybe uh, folks underneath them or uh, people in general. Again, that sends a message. Um, so I, I think how they treat others is a, is a huge part of how that ultimately gets manifested. You know, the big thing on the creativity and innovation side is having diversity in expertise, backgrounds, and experiences. 
whether they're formally assigned or not, I think has less of an impact than the type of information that's shared among the team members. If everybody's the same, the ideas are going to be the same. If everybody's different, um, then it's just going to be some, some good sharing of different uh, provided the climate and environment's right. If you don't like those people, they don't like you, and everybody feels sort of scared about sharing stuff, um, nothing good is going to come of that. So it sort of takes, takes both. So informal or formal, I don't know that I've seen it uh, have to use it. What about you? Have you seen this experience? Yeah, the virtual thing's a, a big question. Uh, Lucky Buck, for example, has this big uh, second life. Are you guys familiar with second life? They have a big second life sort of thing going on, trying to explore whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, the basic rule of thumb with uh, the virtual exchanges is one, you can get a, a, a wide range of expertise uh, in a room because people don't have to travel to get people located. They can can have uh, more people from different areas together. You need to get better expertise. Um, so somebody might say, let's get this you know, famous uh, scientist out in Colorado. The, the, maybe that scientist doesn't want to drive in or fly in, but maybe they can work on a project remotely. Um, so you typically have a wider range, uh, sometimes a, a, a better range. And there's some plus sides on the communication thing and that people can work within their own schedules, but it's not always good. I think there's some, there's some potential benefit there for the reasons like that. But sometimes you miss some things in a virtual environment, particularly if you're just communicating via email or something. You miss the emotional connection. You, you can't read people's faces. You don't know if they really like an idea. Maybe you read too much into you know, exchanges. So that could be a challenge. As we move into things like this, where we start to actually have you know, virtual um, communication that's almost replicated face to face, um, I think that's less of an issue. Um, but it's certainly where a lot of the research is going um, because so much work being done in a virtual environment. There's a lot of upside, not all perfect, there's a lot of potential there. No, we do actually, we want them to generate their own, their own thoughts and ideas, mostly through uh, uh, the papers that they write, which can be created, which can be original, but not always on my quality, maybe not creative. Um, but yeah, they have to generate uh, new thoughts and concepts, and uh, usually in their third or fourth year, maybe not too early, yeah, too certain. We don't give them the past. I don't give them this when we come visit or anything. I should, maybe. I'm going to try that. Great. Thanks so much, guys. I had a great time. I appreciate it.